Okay. It's okay. It's the hour. I know. It's, it's, so, it's the last midnight. Wine. <laughs> Guys, it's two so minutes it's to midnight. <laughs> <laughs> From now on, we're only recording at midnight. This oh is my gosh. the best. Hi, and welcome to Cast Recording, a Starcatcher podcast. Starcatcher is a community-based Jerusalem theater company, and this season we're putting on the classic Sondheim musical, Into the Woods. I'm Nuria Levy, an assistant director at Starcatcher, and each episode I'll be speaking with members of the Starcatcher cast and crew about musical theater in general and Into the Woods in particular, and giving you a behind-the-scenes look at the production. Join us for just a moment in the woods. This week's episode is The Woods Are Just Trees, in which we'll be taking a closer look at the titular woods and exploring some of the ecological themes of the show, featuring special guests Yaeli Greenblatt, Halel Chanoch, and Danny Friedman. Follow Starcatcher on social media to get more information about our production. Hi, everyone. We're happy to welcome back Yaeli Greenblatt and Halel Chanoch, and to welcome to the podcast for his debut show, Danny Friedman. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, so I'm Danny Friedman. I've been working with Starcatcher for a few years now, and this year I'll be designing the set together with Eli. So let's dive in. Unlike what the opening number suggests, the woods are not just trees. What connotations do you all have to the concept of woods, or what adjectives would you use to describe the woods? Mysterious. For me, they're always dark. I don't know why. Even in the daytime, for me, the woods are always a dark place. Very interesting, because recently I was in woods, and I was surprised at how light they were. I mean, nature. Organic in more than one way. I feel like lost, as in lost in the woods, because I feel like there are never any real organized paths there, and it always feels like you can never find your way out. Yeah, maybe eternal, like this feeling of it goes on and on and on. Also ancient. Yeah, I think ancient, but also timeless Mm -hmm. somehow. I feel like those two exist somehow uh, in parallel in the woods. Like they're both very, very old, but also you could step into them and it could be any time and every time. Old also in the sense that trees are really old. Like there's some trees that are around for hundreds and hundreds of years, like way longer than any human is ever around. That sort of connects to the word mysterious that Danny brought up first. And I feel like this idea of the woods as full of secrets, uh, I mean, full of actual animals and beings and natural entities, and also ancient secrets. I'm curious, I was thinking about this today, if you all think there's a difference between woods and forests, and whether the choice for Zondheim, I suppose, or Zondheim and Lapine to, to choose woods and not a forest was a purposeful choice. What's the difference between a wood and a forest? That's so interesting. I feel like forest is a more modern word and is somehow the urban outside of the nature name for the woods. And somehow woods is more ancient and slightly more familiar with the place kind of word. But on the other hand, wood is like the material that... Yeah people have turned the trees into, as opposed to forest, which I feel is more respectful towards nature. 
So I was so curious about this that I actually looked it up and there are definitions of the differences, though the words are pretty much interchangeable, but forest is actually the one that's usually larger. Uh, and the, the differentiation has to do with the percentage of trees in the area. So a forest would have a lot more trees. It would be like 80% full of trees and a wood can be uh, a little more tame. But I feel like in Into the Woods, even though we keep saying the word woods, what we're always imagining is a forest, like all of these connotations of a scary, dark, mysterious place is actually this ancient forest that is made out of woods. But the woods do feel a little bit, the woods do feel in my association, at least something that's closer to home. So maybe on the on the edge of your village, you would have woods. I think that's sort of what you're describing also. Um, and I think that does tie in to the show a lot, which is this idea that we're always on the verge of the woods. And the line between the woods and the home is a very fine line. And it's easy to step into those woods. I'm struck by the fact that a forest is a singular noun versus the woods, which are plural. The woods, it's like this multi-entity kind of location, state of mind, humanoid, animalistic, I don't know, it can be all of these things at once. And so to me, the plurality of the woods, A, just kind of physically conjures up images of many, many trees, many wooden objects, but also has this idea of many layers and, you know, brings us back to this mysterious aspect of it. I do like this idea of the plurality of the woods because it really connects to the archetypal nature of Into the Woods and the fairy tale stories. So the wood is not just a location, but it represents all of these images, all of these places, and all of these stories. So it does really make sense that it's multiple in this sense. To me, the woods are always an away location. They're outside, and it's always the woods next to a village, the woods outside a city. And it, it ties into all that mysterious and that it's a, an other place where different things happen, and it's always kind of a place to go to and not necessarily a place you start in. So where else in literature or theater or even pop culture do we see woods? I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind are sort of horror films, things like the Blair Witch Project or the many references to the Blair Witch Project, which are always like this creepy sense of being in a dark space that's chaotic and out of your control and is, again, both ancient and modern. For me, being the basic literature geek that I am, uh, I went to Robert Frost and um, Yeli, before you were saying that he calls it the wood, which he does in one of the poems, but there's another poem called Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening, in which he writes, the woods are lovely, dark, and deep. And so... That might be where I got the idea from that woods are always dark. There are also a lot of woods in fantasy novels, starting with Harry Potter and the Forbidden Forest, even though it's a forest and we said it's slightly different, but I think it's that same concept of someplace mysterious where there are creatures that we don't know and there's magic and it's 
someplace that is sort of forbidden that you're not usually at, uh, you know, if Danny was saying it's always on the edge of someplace more domesticated. So there's the castle that you're in and then the wood is someplace that's considered unsafe um, and that you're not usually allowed to go. There's also in the novel Uprooted by Nomi Novik, uh, the woods are where the magic is. There's a village where the normal people live and the woods are where the heroine goes to learn magic. And that's the realm of the paranormal or the supernatural. Well, if we're talking about supernatural woods, to me that evokes Tolkien, obviously, and the the woods that are alive and sort of walk, which it, it might be an urban legend, but is possibly a reference to Shakespeare. Are you going to quote it? <laughs> well, it's Burnham Wood. Yes. So. Um, so, yes, this idea of something that is very static and stationary, like a very old tree, kind of becoming animate and being able to, to move is this very powerful image. I wasn't familiar with the first quote you brought, the woods are lovely, dark, and deep, is yeah. that it? But I find it very poignant, and I think it also really ties into a lot of what the show is about. It sort of brings up for me the Moments in the Woods song and a little bit of what Little Red Riding Hood goes through and this idea of both dark, which is what you sort of focused on, but also lovely and something that's tempting. And also deep, that it touches on something deep in us, maybe something deep in us as like animals even, like as creatures. So a pop culture reference that, that I thought of is the film Into the Wild, which, you know, is almost the same name. And there it's it's exactly that. He kind of goes to get away from society, from his urban life into the woods to touch his animalistic his more natural self he then goes on to die but the the woods is kind of a place of going back to what could have been a, a human nature that that got lost in the unnatural living i don't know if this counts as a pop culture reference but i thought of rabbi nachman and this idea of going into the woods to connect with god and for hitbodedut as translated as isolation, maybe, which feels like very different post-COVID. But this idea of going into this alone area as a way of connecting with the supernatural, as you were saying, Nuria. That's so interesting. I think it also is not just the connection to supernatural or God or something, but it also is a connection to oneself and a way of understanding sure. yourself better. Yeah, which... and this idea of of being alone, which is also something that comes up so much in the show of is anyone alone really and can we disconnect ourselves from our families, from society, from the society that we live in and can we go into this alternate existence? And I think that is, at least for some people, like a very human wish to be alone and to be by yourself with only nature around you and be in the woods. And then what you brought up about um, Hasidic Hitbodedut reminded me of an exhibition in the Israel Museum from a few years ago. It was a photography exhibition, and it was pictures of plastic chairs brought in by people coming to do Hitbodedut <gasps> left in these wow. woods around the world, I believe. I think it wasn't just in Israel. And it was a dark room 
So I'm thinking of the way they designed this exhibition. So it was a dark room. The pictures were all portrait, very, very tall, and kind of stood as if they were trees. And all the images were these industrial, plastic, very unassuming pieces of furniture that people tied to the wood that they came to do these isolations in. It was a beautiful exhibition and something about that single piece of furniture for the one person in the wood, but a, a room full of them and kind of seeing that that space that, that people choose to go to be alone in as a... As a phenomenon. As a phenomenon. I want to bring in one more literary reference. I wonder if it's the same one I still have, but go. Maybe. Uh, but it touches on a lot of the topics that were already brought up and that's Dante Alighieri. Was that the one? <laughs> okay, so it came up uh, while Halal was talking, and Danny and, and also Nuria, you brought up this idea of the path, which first goes to Robert Frost, but then also to the opening of Canto One of the Inferno, midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within a forest dark, for the straightforward pathway had been lost. So this idea of the forest as a metaphor for a journey in life, and of course this has religious connotations, so it goes back to these religious practices and to communing with God and the self in this dark space. And the forest connects to the time of the author in his life. So it's it's a space and it's a time and it's a mode of being, uh, which I think is all very relevant to the show. Do you want to elaborate on this, Nuria? I just wanted to, for those who are not familiar with Dante. Yeah, I need some yeah. context for this. <laughs> so the Divine Comedy is this epic piece of literature by Dante Alighieri, originally written in Italian, which describes his journey into the underworld where he meets different characters and heroes from uh, throughout his life. And he begins that journey by traveling through a dark forest, as Yaeli described. And I just wanted to add that part of that inspiration is that the Romans believed that the entrance to Hades was through a forest. So basically, the forest is the preparation of the journey into hell. Yikes. Is <laughs> the darker version of what we were talking about in terms of isolation, but it's still this kind of place where one goes to to connect to the supernatural or to connect to the otherworldly. It's so interesting that it's about the intention. If you go in with the intention of being alone, then you're connecting to yourself or to the divine. But if you go in and can't find the path, then you're lost. Like, but it's the same thing, really. I was reading a, an interesting article in preparation for our discussion um, by Elizabeth Parker, who was thinking about the reasons that we fear the forest or the woods. And she suggests or she maps out sort of seven reasons why we find these spaces uh, frightening or intimidating, a lot of which we've already mentioned. Can we guess them? <laughs> uh, sure, go ahead. Wild animals. Well, it's more psychologically, like, what are the thematic or theoretical mm. things okay. that make us fear the forest? Uh, I'll just list them. So the forest is against civilization. It's associated with the past, which we really were talking about this kind of ancient quality. 
uh, it's a landscape of trial, which I think means that, again, we go there to commune with ourselves, to test ourselves, to face something new. It's a setting in which we're, we are lost. So again, the pathway is nowhere to be found and we can kind of be nowhere or be in a place that is unfamiliar. Uh, and of course, the most important for Into the Woods, it's that it's a site of the human unconscious. And then the last one has to, to, to do with an anti-Christian space, which we won't get into. But that's also interesting to think about religion in that space. But this idea of, of the forest as an echo of our unconscious, I think, is something that works very strongly in the musical. Are we still talking about the musical? <laughs> we can bring it back to the musical. Let's talk about what happens to our characters when they go into the woods. Does any of what we've just said, you know, relate in any way to the journey that the Into the Woods characters go on? Well, I think the image of the path is something that returns again and again in a few of the stories uh, firstly, with Little Red Riding Hood, this idea of being warned not to stray off the path, but straying off the path, uh, and what that signifies in terms of her growing up, being familiar with new and exciting things, dangerous things, um, being a good girl <laughs> or not, uh, is connected. Uh, and then there are other characters who cannot find the path or stray off the path. The baker's wife, for example, in the second act, she loses her way in the forest, and that's the point in which she strays off the path by sleeping with the prince. But finds out something about herself in the process, meaning maybe you have to get lost in order to find something or to have a realization about who you are and what you want. That also comes back to the anti-civilization part, where in the woods, suddenly something like marriage is no longer so straightforward or clear-cut. I think anti-civilization is the reason why, usually in fairy tales, witches live in the woods. They're characters that don't belong in society anymore. The dark feminist interpretation of that is what does society do with older women who are no longer childbearing? Nothing. So they go off and live in the woods and become frightening, uh, uncanny characters that either eat children or um, do evil things to children. But they usually live in the woods, whereas in Into the Woods, the witch doesn't. But she does hide Rapunzel there, which is in, an interesting fact. Her child. Her not-child child. Maybe that's why Little Red Riding Hood's grandmother lives in the woods. Yeah, exactly. I was thinking that exactly she is the old, no longer childbearing, slightly weird, uncultured, or different character. Wild, Ooh. right? Wild, yeah. There is something very violent and uncontrolled about the grandmother and her willingness to seek revenge on the wolf in the most literal way. I don't understand why we're being so judgy towards her. <laughs> Good for her. It's what any normal grandmother <laughs> would do. For her grandchild, yes. She's the real feminist voice of this. Yes. Play. She is what society made her. She's been shunned to the woods and has become part of them. I'm trying to think if there are other characters that sort of embody this idea of going into the woods to be alone or to commune. Because the main characters, they all 
enter their journeys from a place of desire, from something functional. They need to look for something. Uh, and it kind of makes us go and think about the, the side characters a little more. I'm thinking of Cinderella in this sense, where she goes into the woods to disconnect from her day-to-day or her reality and go into the space of connecting with something else. Ancestral. Yeah, and her dead mother. And I think that is something very spiritual and private. I wanted to bring something up that I don't know if we'll use, but it's a thought that I've had in general about this show, which is we have all these very well-known fairy tale characters and stories, but we don't see their stories. We see them on the way to their stories and on the way back. We see Cinderella on the way to the festival and then on the way, but we don't see her dancing with the prince. We hear her talking about it afterwards. We don't see uh, the witch kidnapping Rapunzel. She's already there. We don't see, you know, Jack go up into the realm of the giants. We hear about it from him afterwards and we see the objects that he brings back. So for me, the woods in classic fairy tales are always this place of transition. And yet here they are where the, the main occurrences are happening. Um, So I was wondering what thoughts you guys had about that. It was just an interesting thought to me. I wish I could explain this in some kind of brilliant way, but I was actually discussing this point with Ali yesterday, uh, and he mentioned that this is one of the major critiques that the musical receives, that most of the songs are monologues that are uh, narrating an event that has already happened versus something that is happening right now. So they don't happen in the moment. Some do, but the major character songs really are always looking backwards. Even, you know, The Witch's Rap is about an event that happened in the past. Uh, And Cinderella's song and Little Red song and Giants in the Sky, all of those famous songs are about something that isn't happening now which is a problem in musical theater. It doesn't really work in the genre in the way that it's supposed to. I think as a director, it's going to be a challenge to think about how to make something that isn't happening now feel like it's happening now. And maybe that's the answer, that it's layering an experience with thinking about that experience and that the reflection on the event is actually the event, that the important thing isn't dancing with the prince or being in the sky or whatever happened with the wolf. It's the moment of comprehension because the show really is about psychology and philosophy and not about events. It's just that in plays, you're supposed to focus on events, uh, according to Aristotle, (laughs) at least. So it is a little bit peculiar. But I think it takes us back to this idea of storytelling. The first version that we get is already a story. It's not the event itself. It's the telling of it. Absolutely. And they all become narrators. Every single character is also a narrator, not just the narrator. They're just telling their own tales. But in that sense, I love that moment with Jack and Little Red where... Where she doesn't believe him. She doesn't believe him, yeah. He's telling his story and then she doesn't believe him. And and it's this moment of focusing on the fact that it is self-narrated, right? It's not, she's not seeing it in front of her eyes. Another character that I was thinking about in the context of Hitbo de Dut and doesn't really get a lot of focus is the mysterious man. 
who maybe needs his own podcast episode because he is very mysterious. But he is sort of the classic case and usually also looks like a sort of Rabin Nachman character <laughs> um, who goes out into the woods to, to disconnect from society. He leaves his family, he leaves his home, and he goes off to become this other person who is half human and maybe kind of already a forest creature in himself. Uh, and we don't fully know why he did this and what his story is. He remains mysterious. This is part of his character. But it's interesting that he does have this relationship to the forest that none of the other characters have, not even the witch. Throughout the show, but especially in Act 2, the woods are presented as a threat to the peasants in the village, Rapunzel in her tower, and the royal family in the castle. What does this tell us about the relationship between these buildings and those who live in them and nature? I think in, in the broadest terms, the woods in Into the Woods represent change for all of the characters. And they all change in different ways. But I think people are often afraid of change. They don't want to necessarily discover things about themselves. They don't want their comfortable lives to transform. If you think about the child, Little Red Riding Hood, the baker and his wife, uh, even though they desire things to be different, to receive different things in their lives, uh, the change that the forest represents is not something they can control. And that's something very unnerving and frightening. So in a very different direction than what Yaeli was saying, a lot of the characters in the show go into the woods for utilitarian reasons. They go into to get something, to, to steal something, to find something, to receive something if it's Cinderella, but it's using the woods as a resource for their own wishes, their wants, and in a broader sense, the village with a castle, but the human culture and the society that lives outside the woods uses the woods as a resource. And in a kind of eco-criticism way, the woods in Act 2 kind of takes back. And even if we, and I'll maybe jump into the next section by mentioning the garden, which is a natural element that kind of starts a lot of the action in the show, even though we often don't see it, one can say it's natural, but it's a domesticated natural. And even that gets ruined by the real forces of nature that the woods represent in the second act. The garden gets trampled, the houses get ruined, and this is all kind of a retaliation of mother nature per se, against the actions that these characters committed against it in Act 1. Danny, I really like what you're saying because I always think about the witch as a kind of Mother Nature character. And I think that because of her role as the guardian of the garden and this idea of the using of natural resources, I think comes across really strongly in the story of the witch and the garden because the neighbor who is the father of the baker. So he's the original baker. He comes into the garden and steals all of these greens, greens, nothing but greens, so that his wife can eat them and eat them and eat them. And there's this idea of unnatural consumption. It's almost like this sickness where she has to take and take and take from the garden. The magic isn't clear, like why the beans are special, but it feels like there is a boundary there that's crossed 
where he's stealing not to feed the wife and the child that will be born, but just for fun. And once he crosses that, not for fun, but for curiosity maybe, once he crosses that line, the magic kind of loses control or something there becomes very, very wrong. So I think that same pattern of taking and taking from nature until something explodes then is echoed or mimicked in the dynamic with the woods, but maybe isn't as clear as with the, with the garden. I just realized something when you said the baker. That's the original garden, the Garden of Eden. Yeah, Ellie, you were talking about taking just for fun. And in a sense, maybe that was part of the sin in the story of the Garden of Eden, right? Where nature is everywhere and you can eat what you please, but you can't just take something for no reason. You can't pick the forbidden fruit just because you want to do the forbidden or you want to get something more. And the reason I said the baker is because that's the punishment, right? The punishment for the sin is that How do you translate that? Basically, now humans have to make their own bread. Right. We have to make our own bread, and it really ties into this idea of civilization, right? Before the sin, we were living in this beautiful garden where everything, we could just be one with nature. And then, okay, this is, shout out to my father for being obsessed with prelapsarianism, which is this idea. But then after that, after we were one with nature when we start abusing nature, then we have to do what Danny was talking about, which is use nature and work so hard to produce bread. It's just bread. But Hallel, that's not the only part of the punishment, is it? Correct. Say more. So in addition to making bread, the punishment also has to do with reproduction. Now uh, giving birth is going to be painful. and Yeah, I mean, that's Eve's punishment. It's also very interesting that in the biblical story, Eve was the woman, right, is the one who's the leader of this sin and this idea of the sinful woman. But it's almost like Into the Woods is, if it's at all referencing, and it's not just in our minds, it reverses the curse. Because instead of painful giving child. painful childbirth, there is the lack of childbirth. Because the curse on the baker is that he cannot reproduce, he cannot bear children. Unless you understand that as the pain, right? You could say that it's not physical pain of childbirth. It's the idea of that reproduction is hard. I don't see it that way. I think it's the opposite thing. Not being able to have children, to have a family tree. But it's definitely an interesting connection. This point ties to something that Halal, you mentioned in the middle about the source of society being um, tied to bread and wheat and that cities and villages were built for agricultural or because of the needs of agricultural domestication so that that idea of the garden and the wheat and the baker being kind of the the first type of thing that we settled and made societies for that is where the shift of our ties with nature kind of changed instead of being foragers and being part of the woods and finding seeds and animals and having a more holistic um, relationship with nature and being part of the ecosystem once we domesticated wheat, at least in, in our region in Mesopotamia, that's what tied us into one place. We became separate. We started manipulating nature, kind of ignoring seasons and 
and natural spread of species and in a very primitive way, industrializing nature for our needs. And that kind of ties into the way these characters relate to, to the nature now. Somehow the, the magic beans are like that extra step of domestication, which completely sounds to me like genetical modification. Like there's something so unnatural and unlike what the natural bean behaves like that was kind of the, the witch's mother's extra manipulation of nature that then kind of throws the whole system off. Was definitely in there for the pine and Zonheim, this whole genetics <laughs> of, of beans. Yes. But Sub wait, I will. That everyone has been ignoring. I will say that the first genetical modification experiments of genetics were done on beans. The duality of the wild, untamed nature in the woods versus the more domesticated nature of the witch's garden to me has this connotation to female versus male sexuality and even though we talked a lot about the female characters in the woods and what they discover to me the woods are a more male dominated space versus the garden which is the more domesticated private uh almost virginal as it were uh, I mean, you don't Narrative. actually, yeah, you you don't actually have to look very far. The witch herself talks about the baker's father stealing from her garden in the terms of raping me. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it's there in the text. So this whole issue of a man going into a space that he's not supposed to go without consent, and the idea that the witch did something wrong by allowing him in here, it ties back to the more puritanical views of women who are supposed to be virgins until they're married and the woman who allows herself to be defiled or who lets a man into her garden as it were is then punished even though the baker's father receives his own form of punishment as well the witch is the one who then becomes an outcast who then loses her beauty who loses her youth and becomes this evil character as it were Nuria, I find it interesting what you're saying because then both the woods and the garden in this interpretation that you gave become a space of sexual transgression because we know that both the baker's wife and the wolf and Little Red Riding Hood and the princes in some way find in the woods these private spaces to uh, explore, experiment, find out things about themselves, uh, be threatened by, by things. It's also... You know, whatever happens there between the wolf and the Red Riding Hood, I think rape is a relevant word to the metaphoric structure. So it's interesting that we have two spaces that are representing not quite opposites, but different types of natural spaces, but both kind of work in a similar metaphoric structure. Yeah, I wanted to say that while I agree that there is definitely sexual undertones and, well, overtones, let's be honest, in both spaces, I still feel like in the woods, it's this kind of space where everything is permitted and where experiments can be done. And this whole scene between the prince and the baker's wife is not treated as something necessarily traumatic or even as transgressive as it would have been in, say, the village. It's very much, oh, I tried something and it makes me wonder. And 
we'll have a lot to say about Little Red and the Wolf, I think, in, in a different episode. But even that interaction, while it, it is very scary, Little Red comes out the other side as Little Red, who now knows more about the world than she knew before. But she is still the little girl, and she still needs to be protected, and she is still her character. So this may not be a complete thought yet, but it is something that I was thinking about. No, I like it, and I think we can sort of summarize it as open and closed spaces. So if everything you're saying can be defined as the forest as an open space for experience, the garden is a closed space that is supposed to be controlled. Any entrance into it that disrupts that control is a transgression. Moving on to Can't See the Woods for the Trees. Into the Woods is such a wordy show that we rarely have time as viewers to focus on, let alone analyze, specific lines or words. So in this section, we will take a deep dive into the language of the show by looking at two randomly selected lines and seeing if we can find any connections we wouldn't necessarily have thought of otherwise. Until we have the scripts, I did this in the same way I did it last time, which is going on WikiQuote and randomly picking lines from the page. So our first line is, Sometimes the things you most wish for are not to be touched. The witch says that in the first midnight. Yeah. Uh, what's the context of her saying this? Do we remember? Each character comes forward and says this like childhood line. She says it referring to the objects that she needs to reverse her own curse. The baker later on, when he brings Rapunzel's hair and it does, the spell doesn't work, she then tells them, why do you think I've not been collecting these myself? Because I'm not allowed to have touched any of the objects. That's why she needs the other characters to bring these objects for her. Our second quote is, when first I appear, I seem mysterious, but when explained, I'm nothing serious. So it's the mysterious man. The first time. The first time he appears. <laughs> when first I appear. Yes. He says this line in kind of many different iterations and variations throughout the show. But this is the first time he appears and is questioned uh, by the baker. So now I'll read them together. And let's think if we can find any connections. Sometimes the things you most wish for are not to be touched. When first I appear, I seem mysterious, but when explained, I'm nothing serious. Nuria, the first connection that I think is interesting about these two random sentences is that they're both paradoxes in a way. The witch is saying that the things you want more are things that have to be distanced from you or that have to be far away, uh, which is kind of a paradox that she needs to learn in her own life. Uh, how to desire something but not achieve it. And then the second one is also this kind of contradiction, uh, seeming serious but being humorous, something seeming one way but being another. So that's sort of an interesting connection. The second sentence also makes me think about how a joke loses power when it's explained. <laughs> There's something about... I seem mysterious, but when explained, I'm nothing serious. Uh, it's almost like he's describing a joke, but to me it evokes this idea of uh, explaining something that should remain unexplained. 
Well, bouncing off of that, I could say the same thing for the first quote, which I could take to the kind of the direction of magic tricks. Uh, sometimes the things you most wish for are not to be touched. You know, as a kid, you really want to know how the magician did it. And you want to go there and stick your hand in the hat and, you know, look behind the curtain and see what the magic trick is. And it's always disappointing. It's always better when it remains this magical, mysterious thing that is not touched because it keeps some of that mystery and some of that magic alive. Yeah, I think in your example, Nuria, and also in the witch's story, the touching is a literal touching. She cannot have physical contact with the objects that she desires for the magic. But I think when she says it in the series of sayings or proverbs, the idea behind it is that once you receive something you desire, then you have nothing left to desire. And so the power of a wish is for it to never come true. It almost feels like to me, I think it sounds like a riddle to me because of the I. Often riddles have this pattern of I'm this, I'm this, who am I? Mm. Right? So when first I appear, I seem mysterious, but when explained I'm nothing serious, it almost feels like the question is, who, who are I? you? <laughs> but the solution to the riddle is that he's the father. So I wonder what that means, that fathers at first seem mysterious, but are then <gasps> nothing serious. Bum, bum, bum. It's also this, like, disappointment, I feel like, when you grow up sometimes and adult figures in your life turn out to be not all that you thought. Or just flawed human beings that are not perfect. <laughs> Which goes back again to this idea of the things that are not to be touched, right? Maybe this ideal that you have, you'd rather not touch it and stain it. I keep going back to this idea that nothing serious could be something that isn't serious, that is jokey, but it could also be a serious nothing. And to think of the father figure, especially the father who left his home, who left his child, as a nothing that is serious, or a serious nothing. <laughs> He's seriously nothing, is quite interesting. Moving on to the Three Midnights trivia. Danny, just so that you know, this is a collaborative effort and you get points for getting questions right together as a team. We'll have three questions that are multiple choice and you have to find the right answer. If we each choose one, then we'll automatically win. <laughs> no, learning from the mistakes of last time, you have to agree on a unified answer. Question number one. Which of the following literary works does not feature a forest or woods inhabited by magic? One, The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. Two, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. Three, The Maze Runner by James Dashner. Or four, A Midsummer Night's Dream by William Shakespeare. Narnia definitely yeah, has magic. a magical forest, as and does Tolkien. What was the last option? A Midsummer Night's Dream by William Shakespeare. Definitely has a magical woods. Uh, I, I'm not very familiar with The Maze Runner either, but I'm going to go with that one. The Maze Runner is so random, though, that why would you put that in? It's like the obvious answer. Wait, maybe it's a trick question. It's a maybe trick one question. of them, Forest, isn't magical, but Wait, is... it's a, what's the question again? 
Which of the following literary works does not feature a forest or woods inhabited by magic? <gasps> inhabited by magic. Inanya is inhabited by magical creatures. No, it's definitely inhabited by magic. And Shakespeare is also Shakespeare's forest is also inhabited by No, but let's go with the Maze Runner. Wow, you guys overthought this so much. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> it is number sometimes the obvious answer is just obvious. Question number two. Like Cinderella's mother's tree, one of the following cinematic trees also gives advice to a heroine in need of it. Number one, Groot from Guardians of the Galaxy. Number two, Grandmother Willow from Pocahontas. Number three, The Whomping Willow from the Harry Potter series. Or number four, Apple Tree from The Wizard of Oz. I know the answer. Do you all know the answer? I was going to say Pocahontas. Yeah, me too. But... What was with the apple tree in the Wizard of Oz? I don't remember. So no. the Whomping Willow is animate, but it doesn't actually talk. So it no. can't give advice unless its uh, advice is be very violent when you're being attacked. So I don't think that counts. And the tree in the Wizard of Oz, it has a face and it sort of talks, but it doesn't give doesn't advice. Doesn't it point them in some direction? It does point, but it doesn't really give advice. And I think... Pocahontas is like the natural connotation here because it sings and it gives advice and it's it's a motherly ghostly figure. Correct. <laughs> yes. The apple tree from the Wizard of Oz pelts Dorothy and her friends with apples. So uh, that's not nice. It's yeah, not very it's nice. Not a nice. It's not a nice tree. tree. No. Question number three. This one is in honor of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, the passing of which I am still mourning. And as am I. As a fellow Brit, I felt like Danny would relate. So, what is the name of the initiative to plant trees and protect forests in honor of the Queen's Platinum Jubilee in 2022? One, the Queen's Green Canopy. Two, the Victoria and Albert Forest Trail. Three, Ancient Trees and Woodlands Jubilee Project. Or four, Her Majesty's Wild Woodlands. Well, obviously I have no idea. This... <laughs> Sounds all made up, but just because it's the best name, I'm hoping they chose the last one. The Her Woodland. Majesty something? Her Majesty's Wild Woodlands. Wild Majesty, Woodlands. But I also love the word Jubilee. Yes. Can we make one up that's like Her Majesty's Wild Woodlands Jubilee Forest? You can. It's not going to be the right one. Okay. but So my guess is the last one. But let's ask the Brit. I think it's the first. It just sounds more like a name that would actually give such a project. What is it? The Queen's Green Canopy. Yes, that sounds, sounds dignified. Dignified and slightly paternalistic. And Her Majesty's subject, Mr. Danny Friedman, is of course correct. <laughs> it is the Queen's claps, Green Canopy. Claps. But uh, good, good job, Nuria, for making up all those other names. I know, right? I was, very, I was very proud of myself, but I couldn't come oh, up with a better one. It was a way to process. <laughs> well, thank you guys for recording Past Midnight. <laughs> and... We'll see you next time. Yay! Bye, everyone. Thanks, Thanks, Nuria. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cast Recording, a Starcatcher podcast. Let us know what you thought about our discussion and if there's anything else you'd be interested to hear more about. You can follow the Starcatcher page on Facebook or follow Starcatcher JLM on Instagram. Thanks to Ellie Greenblatt, Halal Chanoch, and Danny Friedman for coming on the podcast. This podcast was produced and edited by Nuria Levy. See you next time for another Moment in the Woods. <laughs>